We're starting our new series. It's called Therefore, and we're doing what comes after this big theological treatise on Romans 1 through 8. Now we're starting in Romans chapter 9. And Romans chapter 9 is, is a, it's a, it's a famous text, if you will. Interestingly, it's not so famous for Seventh-day Adventists. One of the reasons is we come from kind of a different tradition than the way certain traditions use this particular text, right? So if I'm hoping that you've read Romans chapter 9, because um, we're Christians and um, we should read stuff, um, particularly the New Testament. Um, we should read that and understand what it's saying. So if you've never read, read Romans 9, after this sermon, you're going to want to go back and read it. Because if you've never looked at it before, you're going to get the ideas, you're going to get an understanding of it, but you really need to see every word because we're not going to go through every word. I know that's a little bit different than how I normally preach. I'm going to try and put this down. Hang on. I know that's a little different than how I've normally preached, but there's a lot of text and we're not going to go through the whole thing. But, um, but this, this text is really kind of famous and it's kind of infinite, infamous. Um, and we can read it in a few ways. And so we're going to look at the different ways that we can read this text or how we should approach this text. Because this text is seen as one of the, the foundational texts for a deterministic theology. So let me explain to you what a, a deterministic theology is. I was told the other day that I'm a little too academic. So let me, let me break it down for you, fellas. Um, nobody caught the 80s reference. So break it down for me. If I got to do it twice, it's worthless. So I apologize. I apologize. Um, so a deterministic reading of this text, when, if you believe in determinism, what you believe is um, that God has already deter- determined your fate and that you are either predestined, that's the term that we use, predestination, you're either predestined for heaven or you're predestined for hell. Now, we don't believe in hell, so we would say eternal separation from God. We don't believe in an everlasting, tormenting hell, just so you know. So, um, but, but that would be, the, that would be the, the typical understanding that you are either predestined this way or you're predestined that way, and that's it. Those decisions have been made for you. And so this text in chapter 9 is one of those foundational texts for a deterministic theology. Now, Seventh-day Adventism doesn't come from that particular theology. We're not Calvinistic or reform in the way that we've understood these texts. So that's one of the reasons why um, Seventh-day Adventists don't read chapter nine a lot because we get to chapter eight and we're like, that's good, I'm tired, and we go to bed. Um, But... But it's really a foundational text for a Calvinistic understanding of it. And there's been a huge resurgence of Reformed theology over the last 10 or 15 years that, of people believing in this, that some people are predestined for heaven and some are predestined to hell. And we have to take a look at this text and say, is that what it's really saying? Or is it saying something different than that? And so we start with Romans chapter 9, verse 1, because it's kind of good to start at the beginning. Like I said, we won't read all of it, but it says this, with Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. And so Paul is trying to explain something to you here. He's just done all this like deep theological, like salvific work. This is how you're saved. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then he takes a breath and he goes, and with Christ as my witness, I speak with absolute truthfulness, utter truthfulness, my conscience and the Holy Spirit. So I'm not just telling you the truth. The Holy Spirit's backing me up on this. Um, they, They confirm it. They believe that what I'm saying is true. And then he says, my heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief. That's kind of a weird way to start because he just started with nothing can separate us from the love of God. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief. Why 
unending grief. Well, he tells us right in the next sentence, he says, for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. You see, Paul's concerned that they haven't chosen Christ, that they have willfully decided that Jesus was not the Messiah. And so he says, I'm actually willing to lose my salvation in Christ if that would make you believe. Now that's fascinating that he would say that if this is one of the texts where people say, no, you know what? God has already chosen. God has already chosen who is is predestined for heaven and who is predestined for hell. Why would Paul be saying, hey, no, like I just want them to choose. Here's what's interesting. According to, you know, the reading that I've done, the studying I've done, um, nobody was really all that concerned about this stuff until Augustine. Augustine wrote in about 300 um, AD. And when Augustine is, you know, this huge Christian theologian, when Augustine began to write in 300 AD, he begins to deal with the concept of predestination or election, sometimes we call it, um, this concept of determinism. He's the one who starts worrying about it. One of the reasons why he's beginning to worry about it is in the, in the, in the 300 years up to the fourth century that um, Christianity had been in place, we see some of this Greek thought moving in to Christianity. Christianity, right? They're beginning to have to struggle with a bunch of different philosophies. And so Augustine takes it on. And basically the question that we're asking, right, is do we have free will? And it's a fair question. This becomes like the question. It's a huge question. Paul didn't actually seem to struggle with it that much, but we now have to struggle with it with these texts because of what's happened in the last 1700 years since we started talking about it. So this question, do we have free will, begs another question, which is what kind of world did God create? Did God create a world where things were already chosen? In other words, did Adam and Eve not have a choice in falling? Did, did the children of Israel have a choice when they were chosen? Does anyone have a choice on anything that happened? What kind of world is that? Is that the world that God created? Which, by the way, begs another question, because questions always do, which is what kind of God is God? Is he sovereign? Is he in charge? Can he not be in charge? Because that's one of the arguments for predestination. God is in charge. If he's in charge, he's always in charge. And if you don't think he's in charge of everything, what do you think? God's not really powerful. So that's one of the issues that we have here. How, how does God work? Does he work through coercion or does he work through influence? Do we have free will or just the appearance of free will? Is God a micromanager or does he take risks on us? Now, what does that mean? You see, if you're going to give someone a choice, you've just entered risk into the relationship, haven't you? If someone's going to choose, there is risk involved. So the question is, is God a risk taker? Does God believe that you may make a good choice and is he willing to risk it? It's a fair question. It's a great question. Anytime relationships get real, there's risk. I use this illustration all the time, but it's so perfect. You tell someone you love them, that's risk. Waiting for their answer. Your kids grow up, they get driver's licenses, they get in the car. We say, yeah, you've chosen well, and they drive off. That's risk. Is God a risk taker with you and with me? Or has he already chosen so he's not really taking risks? Or do we even need free will? I mean, a lot of faith traditions say we don't really need it. And actually, it's, it's more loving of God to make those decisions for us because he ultimately knows way more than we do, which is true. But maybe it's more loving for him to make those choices for us. I have some issues with that. But I understand the reasoning. 
How can I possibly know what God knows? You just make the choice. So Paul continues in Romans 9, 4. He says, listen, um, and remember, he's talking about his brothers and sisters uh, in Israel. He says, they, they are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. So it sounds like there's, okay. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. So Paul's making the argument like, hey, these people have been chosen and I'm desperately sad that they're not choosing God. And they've been this chosen people, this nation of Israel. But you know, there's a problem with chosenness, right? There's a problem with chosenness because their chosenness had moved them to an elite status. See, the, the, the problems that are created by being a chosen people all have to do with arrogance, with status, and with exclusivity. Let's not underplay these issues. Because even in the church today, we deal with these issues. We deal with theological arrogance. We got it right, nobody else did. We deal with status. By the way, us getting it right, that means God loves us. Maybe just a little bit more. And the third thing is, that means he doesn't love you as much. And that's exclusive. There's an exclusivity within that. That's the problem with chosenness. You see, so that becomes part of the problem with determinism. The fact that God chooses, a, God chooses a certain group of people and he doesn't choose another group of people. You see, the problem with determinism is similar, but a little bit different. The problem with determinism is that determinism dehumanizes because it already creates the categories, the saved, I'm, I'm pointing to myself, and the unsaved. But that's actually a pretty good illustration. I mean, I don't think the numbers are correct. That seems like an overwhelming amount of you out there. Um, but, but it dehumanizes, right? The moment we label somebody, oh, we're, we're the elect, then that means there's some that are unelect. Unelect? Not elected. If, if that's the case, they become the other. And that's what labels always do, right? In life, all labels dehumanize, Right? I'm, I'm this, that means that, that you're not. And what we do, like, it's not just saved and unsaved. We actually create more and more categories. And we do this in politics, we do this in life, right? Oh, that person, they're lazy. Don't have to think about that person anymore. Don't have to think about their situation. Don't have to think about their context. Don't have to think about anything about them. They're just lazy, right? Oh, they're stupid. Okay, we don't know what's going on in their life at all. But now that I've made that judgment call, now that I've put them in a category, I don't have to think about them as a people anymore or a person. All I have to do is think about them as this label. Labels always dehumanize. And determinism leads us to that because there are those who are and those who are not. Simple. Determinism also undermines assurance, right? Because if God is choosing, no matter what happens, if somebody leaves the faith, God ordained that that they leave the faith. What if somebody lived their whole life as a faithful Christian? And let's say something terrible happens and they just, they lose and they fall out of faith and they leave. And that was a, somebody who you looked to and it was a pillar, but they left. And if you believe in a deterministic theology, then you have to actually think, well, God preordained them to leave the faith. So that sounds like, well, okay. But the problem is, how do you know that you're not somewhere along that line that you're gonna walk away and that's what God determined as well? So it undermines the assurance of salvation that God always has chosen you. Because you never know if you're one of, the, one of the ones in or the one of the ones out. And determinism also does another thing. For those who even say that they're elect, determinism relieves responsibility. Why would you need to tell someone about God if they were already determined to go to hell? 
There would be no reason for evangelism. Honestly, there'd be no reason for us to meet. We wouldn't even need to get together because just in the end, we would know because we'd be in heaven and those people wouldn't. We wouldn't have to do all this stuff. This is a lot of work. So we got to take a look at these texts and go, well, how am I going to approach them, right? How do we approach these texts? How are we supposed to understand something that looks like it might say this, but actually might say something different? I've got a few ideas. The first of all, the first idea is this. We are Christians, right? We are Christians. So that means that God, we believe that God's power is revealed in the cross completely, right? God's power is revealed in the cross completely. We believe that. So what that means is that if, if this is our guiding principle, when we read something that doesn't sound like it jibes with the idea of the cross, with his overwhelming, unreasonable, and uncompromising grace, if we read something that is the antithesis of that, we might be reading it wrong. We need to take a moment and go, wait a second, is that right? And friends, we should do that on everything that we believe. Because if it can't stand up into the shadow of the cross, then we must have it wrong. But what this also means is that as Christians, we believe that every text is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Every single text that there. That means that if the text is seriously confusing the character of Christ, we probably need to keep excavating what's in there. I'll give you an illustration from archaeology, right? It's, it's simple when you see something laying on the ground to think you know what it is, right? Um, I, remember, I remember back in Caesarea when we did archaeology there, there was, um, there was this little pot handle that was sticking up out of the ground. And there's pot handles, there's handles on everything in pottery, essentially, so you can pick it up. And there's this little pot handle, and it looks like, you know, it may be part of a little amphora or maybe, uh, maybe a lamp or something. It's about this big because the, the handle wasn't that big. So they began to excavate around it and they began to clear it out. And as they cleared out, they realized, no, it's a little bit bigger. It kept going, no, actually, it's a lot bigger. By the time they got down to the bottom of it, what they realized, it's like a 30-gallon amphora. It just had some filigree put up around the rim of it and it was one little piece that looked like a handle. Had they not continued to go, they would have been absolutely wrong on what it was. We do that if we don't delve deeply into Scripture. We may see one thing, but it may not be exactly that. And of course, context is important as well. Context is everything. What was he trying to say? Was determinism the argument that Paul was trying to make? Because we saw what he said at the beginning, right? He said, listen, my heart is aching. I am, I'm, I'm bitter and I'm sorrow. I, I'm full of grief because my, my friends, my family have not chosen Jesus as Christ. That doesn't sound like he's making a deterministic argument. It sounds like he's doing something specifically different than that. He's pleading with them to know God and to make a decision for Christ. Paul begins by stating his profound grief that his family and his community is rejecting Christ. But then he's got to make the argument, right? Because now he's saying, listen, this is a, this is a mess and you were chosen, but, but something's changed. So he says this in 9.6, he says, well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel that you'd be a chosen people? And he says, no, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. That's big. That's different because he's now just opened up the borders he now just said, oh, it's not just about the chosenness that you have. It's not just ethnicity anymore. And the reason why he's saying that is because he realizes that some choose faith and some choose law. Paul is arguing this all throughout Romans 9. God is faithful because the true Israel is not just the Israelite of birthright or law, but those who have the faith of Abraham. 
And also, one of the things we got to recognize is that in this text, at the end of the text, Paul actually summarizes his thoughts. And by the way, if you're reading something in scripture and the author says, so let me tell you the point, or what does all this mean? That means you should listen to what he's talking about. Do you remember in Romans 1, 18 through 30, there was that long list of sins, those sins that people get hung up on, one sin in particular that people get really hung up on that are really like super stressed out about it. If you don't know what I mean, go back and look at scripture. You should read scripture, right? Well, the argument that we made way back then 20 weeks ago was that that's not what Paul was talking about because Paul actually capped that phrase at the end in chapter three, verse 20, when he said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Remember, he was doing something different. He wasn't calling out particular sins. He was calling out all of our problems, right? So at the end of Romans nine, this is what he says. He says, what does all this mean? Summarizing statement. Even though The Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards. They were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. 31, but the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. 32, why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. The law had become a stumbling block. See, in the next three chapters, Romans 9 through 11, what we actually see is that Paul is emphasizing free will all over the place. Why? Because he keeps saying, God is wanting you back. Please make a good choice. It doesn't make sense that God would beg them to come to him, specifically 11 verse 20. It doesn't make sense that God would specifically beg them to come back to him if he had already made the decision that they never would or could. But the problem is the text doesn't exactly sound like it here. And, and there's a particular metaphor that he uses in chapter nine that we need to look at more, more perfectly, if you will. Particularly nine verse, verse 21, it says this, when the potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? That seems like a reasonable argument. In the same way, Even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. Now, that's where we get hung up, right? There are those that are destined for destruction. Wait a second. That makes the point right there. That's clear. But let me tell you, when we use an Old Testament analogy, because this comes from the Old Testament, it doesn't come from Paul. Paul didn't make this up. Paul's actually using a Jeremiah text. But when you use Old Testament analogies, you probably need to know what the Old Testament says about it, right? So let's go to Jeremiah, shall we? Let's take the journey. What was Jeremiah trying to convey? You see, was he saying that God could just do whatever he wanted with anyone, make these decisions, or was he saying something else? Let's look, Jeremiah 18.1. The Lord gave this message to Jeremiah, another message to Jeremiah. He said, go down to the potter shop and I will speak to you there. I love it that God's using like like a, uh, a picture story, right? Um, So I did, says Jeremiah. So I went down there and he told me, as he told me, and found the potter working at his wheel. But the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. That's interesting. So he crushed it into a lump of clay and again, and started over. In the New International Version, it says, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. Some translations say, but the clay had gone bad. It was, it was spoiled. That's actually the term that they use. Now, I don't know a lot about ceramics. Um, my, wife was the, my wife was the art major. I never did ceramics. To me, ceramics is kind of like that scene in Ghost. Like it's very, it <laughs> seems like it's very exciting. Um, 
if you, if you believe in ghosts. Um, no, I, so I don't, I've never really done it, but I asked my wife, I said in her art program, I was like, hey, what was your hardest class? And she's like, she's like ceramics is a mess. It's so hard. You know, your hands get cracked and dry and that's a mess. And like sometimes the clay doesn't do what you want it to do. It'll just do whatever it feels like. Sometimes the consistency of the clay is not right. And then you turn the wheel too fast and you're throwing clay all around, right? Sometimes it just won't work the way you do. I mean, we've all seen it, right? We've all seen somebody make something that they're like, look, and you're like, I don't know what that is. Right? They're like, it's a vase. You're like, not for pretty flowers. You know, we just end up putting our keys in it, right? That's what mostly we do. Like, oh, I'm putting, on the, I'm putting the keys in there. You have to do it for like six months when you get one for Christmas. And then you can throw it out. But it's six months, just so you know. Right? But, but here's what's interesting. The, the point of this is not about the power of the potter to, to, to determine what the clay should be. He's got to work with the clay that he has. The power is about the, the, the point is it's about the master potter's wise flexibility in working with the clay and responding to what the clay actually is and is doing. Some clay is never going to become a pot because it doesn't want to. Some of us will never make the choices that God wants us to make because we don't want to. Does that mean that God chose from forever ago which way we're going to go and we're just playing out the rules? No. Jeremiah 18.5 says, Then the Lord gave me this message. O Israel, verse 6, O Israel, can I not do to you as the potter has done to his clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. Again, it could sound deterministic, but he continues. But then that nation, if I announce, sorry, if I announce a certain nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed. Here comes the crux. But then that nation renounces its evil ways. I will not destroy it as I had planned. See, it's easy to go those, those destined for destruction and go, oh, that's it. A bunch of people are destined for destruction. We can become fatalistic about our understanding of this. Or we can read through the text and understand that when a nation renounces its evil ways, when a person renounces its evil ways, I will not destroy it, says God, as I planned. In other words, he's saying this, if you turn, I turn. If you turn, I turn. This is the whole story of Jonah, friends. Don't you remember? Jonah's like, I'm not going to Nineveh. And he wasn't not going to Nineveh because he didn't want to deal with the people. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he thought they might actually listen to God. And then he was going to look stupid, which by the way, is exactly what happened. He gets up, he's like, God's going to destroy you in 40 days. And the people are like, oh, are you serious? What do we got to do? Sackcloth and ashes? All right, we'll mourn for 40 days. And Jonah's like, are you serious? I'm here bringing fire and brimstone and God's just forgiving everybody. Thanks a lot. You understand that's what was going on, right? To the point where he got mad at the worm. <laughs> we think determinism says you're going one way or you're going the other, but that's not true. God says, I can change my mind because you did. I told you judgment is coming, but don't go all fatalistic on me. I will change my mind as you do. Jeremiah 18, 11, therefore, Jeremiah, go and warn all of Judah and Jerusalem. Say this to them. This is what the Lord says. I am planning disaster for you instead of good. So turn from your evil ways, each of you, and do what is right. 
So what does chapter nine tell us? What it actually tells us is that no one is born fated. No one is born determined. You are free to make a decision for the law or for Christ or for neither. That's an option too. To walk away from God completely, which means that God is a risk taker. God is willing to risk you actually loving him. God is willing to risk you actually not loving him. That's how much he loves you because he wants an uncoerced love. It makes no sense that God says, come back to me to people who he has already predetermined that they can't. What we learn from chapter nine is that God desperately wants us to turn to him. Everything he has done and everything he is doing is so that we can be with him from covenant to the cross. God is calling us back with outstretched arms. And Paul's talking to his people going, folks, I miss you. You're my family. I want you back with me. When someone leaves, we must weep, we must regret, and we must do everything we can to bring them back into the family of Christ. When someone doesn't know who Christ is, we must do everything that we can do to let them know the love and grace and mercy that comes through Jesus Christ. This is why we do things like, like a trunk or treat on October 31. We're doing it with Active Church. It's why we do these things. Not so we can give out half a million pieces of candy, which is what Active Church told us they need to do it down here. We're doing it with them, which is really cool. That's our church that meets here on Sunday. Um, this is the reason why we do CW15 and have a concert and have food and places to play and all that sort of thing. So you can be, bring people who aren't gonna make it here on a Saturday morning, because that's too much. We want them to come and hang out with us just to realize like we're not crazy and that we love them deeply so that Jesus might love them and they might understand that love. That's why we do what we do. Let's bow our heads. God, Father, thank you. Jesus, for what you've done, for your open arms, for asking us to come back, for giving us the freedom to choose to come back, for not determining that some of us might never get a chance to be with you, but opening up the opportunity that we might all be with you. Thank you for loving us that much, all of us. And Lord, thank you for, for giving us the patience to look through scripture and deeply into scripture so that we can understand what's being said here, the point of it all. And Lord, accept our praises as we worship with you one more time so that you may know how much we love you. In your name I pray, amen. Stand and worship one more time.